Welcome to 2022. May God have mercy on us all, finally and at last. More importantly, he said without a trace of irony, welcome to season two of GM Word of the Week. And we know, or rather I know, what you're thinking. Season two? So soon? Surely you jest. Well, first, don't call me Shirley, and second, I'm aware that in your more traditional entertainment presentations, the numbering of seasons, or if you happen to be accidentally British, series, tends to coincide with the production schedule. In the American sense of season, it's usually one year of new episodes, generally about 22 or so, before they knock off for the next year's worth and put on the reruns. And in the British sense, or series, it's a small handful of a half dozen or so episodes after which they take a break to decide whether they really want to do any more or not after all, and whether the first series was even a good idea to begin with. Sometimes, with the series method, this means that a show which gets two or more series might see those series separated by as much as two or three years or more before returning to the screen, much to the relief of the British viewer who has spent the intervening time wondering whether there's any point in continuing to stare at the television waiting. Whereas in America, if the second season doesn't come along promptly the next year, it's time to start writing letters and complaining that 20 years later, Firefly still hasn't come back. Which is why the announcement that GM Word of the Week has any seasons at all is something of a surprise. See, the show has been in production nearly constantly since the first episode appeared on April 20th, 2015. And as far as entertainment value for money goes, that's a 300-episode first season encompassing all the changes and improvements made over that time. Episodes got longer, production skills and values improved, equipment and software got upgraded, and the writing team changed. And frankly, before we go any further, let me just take the opportunity to thank all our loyal supporters and patrons who made all of that not only possible, but encouraged the both of us to keep at it so that we can get to an actual episode list that includes over 300 topics, all aimed at helping the folks who run tabletop role-playing games put more flavor in their flavor text and have a good time. So, at 300, why suddenly go to Season 2? It seems an unnecessary step. Surely you just keep incrementing the numbers you already have and keep chugging things out just as you have done. Well, yes and no. There are a number of personal and practical reasons for changing seasons at this stage. The first of which is that our RSS feed is simply running out of room. At 300 episodes, the feed can't handle 301 without dropping the first episode off the end of the feed. It's stuffed full, and like many of us at the holidays, something has to give. So the Season 2 designation serves to mark an imaginary spot where, because of technology, it is useful to know where the logical break between the old and the new is. You'll start seeing episodes marked as Season 2 in your podcatcher of choice, assuming it supports that functionality. If you've kept up with us all along the way, it's not so important for you. But for someone new coming along, it's a handy way to jump in and play Spot the Difference. Season 2 is also going to mark the point at which we let an old friend go. Well, not literally, of course, but intellectually. For the last couple of years, the show, as you will know if you listen through the credits, has been entirely created and produced by one person, and it's getting increasingly awkward in the writing and presentation to claim for two people that which only applies to one without there actually being a second person. We don't own a number one dog. I 
do. It didn't make any sense when we wrote it into an episode a month ago, and it still doesn't. But we, or rather I, went ahead and did it anyway, and then spent most of the intervening time until the public release of the episode wondering how we, or I, would justify it if someone happened to ask if the dog was on a timeshare between us. So, it's time to put that bugbear to bed. About which, see our episode on the bugbear. Add in changes in the way the show is supported, on Buy Me A Coffee if you haven't heard by now, the overall change in the style of the show, and a number of other factors, and it just makes more sense than usual to go ahead and start a new season after some 300 episodes of the first one. So let's go ahead and do that. But rest assured, not everything is changing. Some things will always remain the same. It will always be about helping GMs put more flavor in their flavor text. And more importantly, I'll always say, this is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Actually, this whole series versus season thing is a bit of a kerfuffle when it comes to television programming. The problem seems to be that no one quite understands what the difference is or why there should be any difference at all. All of which is compounded by the fact that the two separate systems have begun in recent years to incorporate elements of the other into their current framework. It's made a real mess of things, and we're going to have to go back quite a ways to sort things out in any kind of understandable fashion. Take Charles Dickens, for example. No, really. Charles John Huffam Dickens was born on the 7th of February, 1812, in Portsmouth, England. His father, John Dickens, was a Navy pay officer, and as such was regularly moved around England by the Navy in the fulfillment of his duties. This meant that the young Charles Dickens found himself living all over England with a move imminent every few months, until his family finally settled in Kent. An avid reader with an excellent memory for people and events, he would later use these skills while attending school and in his later writing. Unfortunately, for Charles and his parents, his father was imprudent with money, and this landed Jonathan in debtor's prison where his wife and youngest children joined him, which for some reason is just how things were done then. Charles, then 12 years old, was boarded with a family friend and later moved to live with a court agent. Unfortunately, Charles was forced to leave school in order to take on work so he could pay for his room and board and set some money aside to help pay off his father's debts. In exchange for his 10-hour workdays pasting labels on pots of boot blacking, Dickens received the handsome sum of six shillings a week, or by way of conversion, just about 35 pence. Famously, the conditions under which he and other children worked and the people he encountered became central components of his future writing. Eventually, his father would get out of prison, a feat made possible only because Jonathan's mother died and bequeathed him 450 pounds with which to finally settle his debts and get the family out. Charles was later able to attend school and eventually got a job as a junior clerk in a law office, learned shorthand, and became, shortly thereafter, a freelance reporter of legal proceedings, which of course was the gateway to his writing career. Now, there's a lot to know about Charles Dickens and his influences and inspirations, and goodness knows I can't cover them all here, or we'd do nothing but talk about Charles Dickens for an entire episode. And as interesting as some of you might find that, it's fair to say this isn't the best venue for that discussion. Too much would be left out, 
and too many particular points would be passed over unfairly. So let us accept, for the moment, that Charles Dickens is a writer about whom it is worth satisfying your curiosity in order to understand one of the major literary figures of the 19th century and whose works still influence the works of others today. The thing we really want to focus on for our own purposes today is the fact that he wrote novels. Or rather, that he didn't write novels. No novels at all were written by Charles Dickens. Before you start jumping up and down in your seat and gesticulating wildly at your bookshelf full of novels claiming to be written by one Charles Dickens, let me clarify the point. Yes, Charles Dickens wrote many stories which now bear his name, but he did not write novels at the time of first writing. What he wrote were serials, fiction intended to be regularly published in chunks over the course of weeks or months in magazines and newspapers. Only after they were completed were the various story installments collected into a single bound volume and sold as a novel. And now you see where I'm headed, and why I had to mention Dickens at all. He was the most famous example of the numerous authors who wrote first for serialized publication. And the thing about serialized publication is that it has an effect on the type and style of writing one must do. See, once movable type and the printing press came into wider use in the 17th century, one of the problems became filling up all that space now so readily available in the newest and most exciting forms of printed documents, the periodicals, like magazines and newsletters, and the newspapers, which, strictly speaking, aren't proper periodicals, but close enough for now. If you pick up any particular piece of paper, you will immediately note how it has a specific size and shape. When it comes to writing on that piece of paper, you will know, roughly, given your handwriting and writing instrument, how much of that paper you can fill up with what you have to say. The thing of it is, when it comes to writing to Aunt Flora about how deeply you were snowed in this year, it's fine if the amount you have to say doesn't exactly fill up the space available to you. Aunt Flora doesn't care, she's just happy to hear from you after all these years. However, it is not okay to come up short in your writing if what you are doing is charging Aunt Flora a dollar a page to report on your local weather, and what you hand her is one full page of weather report and a second page with six words at the top, such as, Hope all are well, sincerely me. Aunt Flora is likely going to complain that you've overcharged her because you've provided nothing of value on that second page. Which is largely the sort of situation magazines and newspapers try to avoid. Their customers expect a certain volume of writing per page and very few blanks. So when you've reported the news of the day or month, given the weather report, listed the sports scores, and misprinted the comics, you've got to hope it all neatly fits into the space you've allotted for it without running under and leaving blanks. And sure, you could charge less, but who in business is going to do that just because Tuesday's news is a few column inches short? If Wednesday's news runs several inches longer than you have room for, are you going to charge more even if you haven't the room to print it? That seems just as likely to upset customers as overcharging for less. Ideally, you want a nice, regular price for a relatively stable amount of printed news that both you and the customer can count on and plan for. Which is why there was a market for something to print when the news came up short. Something with which to fill those precious column inches when no one was shooting at anyone else or making up silly laws for everyone to follow or complaining about how the snow you get these days didn't compare at all to the snow you used to get when they were a kid. 
And it turned out one of the things you could fill those inches with was a story. So writers like Dickens took up their pens and began writing what would become known as serials. It's not a phenomenon you get so much these days in newspapers, but back in Dickens' day, the serial was hot property. A newspaper printing a popular serial, one that captured the public's interest and imagination, could expect their circulation to rise sometimes as high as tenfold or more. Beyond just filling otherwise blank sections of newspapers, the serial was useful in other ways. See, even with the ability to print them in bulk, it was still pretty expensive to make books, especially if you weren't entirely sure the book you were going to publish would make money. It was much safer, cheaper, and more useful to publish a potential upcoming book as a full or partial serial in the local paper and gauge public interest for a bound volume of the same material before committing to it. Which also carried the added advantage that if the public didn't respond well to the initial offerings, the author could make adjustments as serial publication went along to the plot, the characters, and whatever else they thought might increase public demand for the finished book. Entire novels were frequently rewritten and completely changed between the time the serial debuted and its eventual publication as a bound volume. And if the changes still didn't catch the public's eye, well then you needn't bother publishing it as a book after all. This practice became so prevalent that the deciding factor for novel publication soon became less about the quality of the writing and much more about how hungry the public became for a particular work. With sufficient popularity, for whatever reason, anyone could get a novel published regardless of how well they wrote or how solid the plot was or even whether it made much sense at all when everything was said and done. As long as lots of people were clamoring for it, you were likely to get a book deal out of it. Thank goodness we got over that, huh? By the time the Victorian era rolled around, the art of writing serials was sufficiently refined that people like Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins, and some guy named Doyle didn't even have to have a novel ready to go beforehand. They could write the serialized installments as they went along, with the next installment hitting the editor's desk just before the current one was published, making changes and adjustments along the way to suit the immediate public feedback as necessary. The process of serialized publication began to color the way novels were presented and how stories were told. It was vitally important to keep the readership coming back for the next installment, and so it became regular to end each installment with a cliffhanger, a situation which seemed impossible for the protagonist to escape, or a vital piece of information that was about to be revealed, and then saved the revelation or the escape for the start of the next installment. The more consistently this could be done, and the more daring the situation, the more likely it was for the reader to come back and see what happened. Serialization also had an effect on the length of the finished novel. The more the public responded well to a serial, the more installments a newspaper or magazine wanted, and so the more the author was asked to produce. Novels which published the subsequent material grew in length correspondingly. Those serials that lost readership over time frequently ended earlier than expected, and so either didn't become novels, or became much shorter novels than anticipated. The more the public liked you, the bigger your published book could be. Writers like Dickens and Doyle soon grew adept at meeting public expectations and, given the unsure nature of final publication, learned to write only as much as was needed at any given time. After all, what would be the point of writing an entire novel out only to have half of it never see publication if the public didn't take to it? Which is why no one has ever solved The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Dickens was working on it in installments when, in 1870, 
he died, with only six of a planned 12 installments published. There were no plans for the remaining installments, and no solution to the mystery of the story left behind. There are, of course, plenty of guesses about what was intended and who the murderer central to the story might have been, but no one knows for sure what Dickens' intentions were. While he may have had a definite plan for the story, it's quite likely he was shaping things as he went along to take into account the public reaction to the installment so far, leaving his options open, as it were. Which was one thing the Doyle we've been talking about hoped not to do. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, who created and wrote the mysteries of one Sherlock Holmes for The Strand magazine. After six years of writing nothing but Holmes stories, including numerous shorter pieces, as well as two novel-length works, Doyle was a bit tired of the character and wanted to move on to other things. So he killed off Sherlock by sending him over the now-famous Reichenbach Falls in the clutches of his mortal enemy Dr. Moriarty, and then washed his hands of the whole endeavor. As far as Doyle was concerned, that was the end of the whole thing. The public, on the other hand, was absolutely livid. 20,000 readers of the Strand magazine immediately canceled their subscriptions. Letters of protest poured into both the magazine's offices and Doyle's own home address. For eight years, protests and complaints continued to come in until finally, at last, Doyle relented and brought Holmes back to life in The Hound of the Baskervilles, serialized from 1901 to 1902 a story set some time before Holmes's published demise, and no public reaction of that kind had ever been seen before. Which no doubt caught the eye of those exploring the new forms of entertainment soon to be available, when radio broadcasts for entertainment purposes began in the 1920s. Among the operas and sporting events being broadcast, it must have seemed perfectly natural to take up stories that had already been created in a serialized format and simply read them out, installment by installment, and, soon thereafter, dramatize and act them. Why not call them serials as well and present them in a series of contiguous broadcasts? Which is what they did in the United Kingdom. The tradition carried over to television as well. Since the series are kept relatively short at six to eight episodes each, and since each series is commissioned in full from the outset, the official method of getting rid of an unpopular show is to simply not renew it for any further series installments. Which frequently means that an unpopular series ends on a cliffhanger that is never resolved. Unless, of course, the commissioners see fit to respond to public demand and recommission a show sometime later for a brief run. Like the popular British sci-fi series Red Dwarf, which aired three series from 1988 to 1989 then a fourth in 1991, a fifth in 92, a sixth in 93, skipped a few for a seventh in 1997, skipped another year and came back in series eight in 1999, and then is dribbled out in blips and blobs since 2009. In all, 13 series so far spread out over 32 years. American broadcasters had much the same process, starting with radio and moving to television. But in contrast to the British system, programs were commissioned for much longer runs. The first season of popular lawyer drama Perry Mason debuted in 1957 and was comprised of 39 episodes beginning in late September of that year and ending in June of 1958, a fairly typical run for television shows up to that point. 
Radio programs were often lengthier, some even remained in continuous production year-round. The problem, though, and one of the contributing factors that led to the season series confusion, was that movie theaters in the early to mid-1900s would play short films that saw a couple hours entertainment broken up into several 10 to 20 minute segments to play either before or after the feature film. Characters like the Lone Ranger, who we discussed briefly in our White Horses episode, would star in these movie serials, which maintained the tradition of cliffhanger endings and shorter planned runs of fewer installments. Since these were already called serials and occurred in series, it made sense to look for an alternative name for what radio and television were trying to do. The longer runs of radio and TV meant that entire seasons of the year would pass before a show's run would complete, so that name seemed a more natural fit. The downside, of course, was that if a show wasn't doing well in the ratings, it had to be ended in the middle of its run and replaced, often with little warning and no cliffhanger ending. Just an abrupt and sudden stop to everything. Rarely, an American show will be cancelled even though everyone and their brother was watching it. At least, that's what the thousands of rabid fans will claim when they write in to save it in spite of the network's hasty decision. And if the cast is still available, and the producers and writers and directors can all be wrangled into the same place at the same time, it might be brought back from cancellation in all its former glory. Or maybe another network will see it and see the fan response and decide to pick it up instead. It's happened a few times. Heck, it even happened to one of my favorite shows, Due South. It took the combined efforts of the Canadians, the French, and the Italians to do it, but they did. They brought it back in spite of a major network canceling it. It even had a nice little post-cancellation run that was worth watching, and finally came to one of the best series conclusions I've ever seen. But come on, gang. Firefly was 20 years ago now. Maybe it's time to let it go. Welcome to Season 2. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more of them, first head over to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com and check out our back catalog of Season 1. Have we mentioned there are 300 episodes hanging out there? We must have at this point. Second, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback and become a member. Your contribution there will entitle you to early episode releases, transcripts, monthly chat sessions with me, and even our bonus footnote episodes. There's lots of cool people there already, so why not head over and join them? You'll support the show and meet some like-minded individuals at the same time. GM Word of the Week is a Fiddleback production and is researched, written, and produced by me, Brian Casey. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I've done a movie and a TV series, and someday I'd like to do a successful movie and a successful TV series. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs>